I want to share four case studies with you. They will prepare you to receive the text. Before I start putting filet mignon before you, you need a plate to hold it. And these case studies are your plate. They will create, hopefully, in you a need for the text and get your mouth watering for the meal. Case study number one, Tim. Tim grew up around nominal Christianity. Everyone in his little Texas town was a Christian. However, none of them really lived it. None of them really studied the Bible. None of them really had a walk with Christ. And this cultural Christianity disgusted Tim. This created in him a healthy view of what a Christian is, but also an unhealthy response towards some Christians. Tim has always had a unique personality. That's a nice way of saying he's an obnoxious Texan. <laughs> he's a know-it-all. He's, he's never met an argument he didn't like. The grace of God is still training Tim. He's growing a lot, but he's also arguing a lot. He finds it easier to discuss the latest political controversy than he does discuss the gospel. He prefers reading blogs about contentious issues more than blogs that stress the gospel. He tends not to hear other people. He's constantly interrupting. Tim actually loves to fight. Not physically, but argumentatively. Like a tiger whose ears perk up at the sound of a feeding deer, Tim's ears perk up at the sound of a new tantalizing Christian controversy. He frequently wastes his time with heated debates on Facebook and Twitter. I call him Tim, Tim the Texas Tiger. How do you handle Tim the Texas Tiger in a local church? Some of you are Tim, and I'm the first to say that there are times we must fight. But when you love to fight, your view of Christianity isn't near as healthy as you think. On to case study number two. Eric. Eric is a professing Christian. He says all the right things. The problem is he also says a lot of wrong things. He's extremely divisive. He's not like Tim, who's a, a little puppy always chewing on furniture and biting people's shoes. No, Eric's another extreme. He's viciously divisive. His theology is warped. His doctrine is turned inside out. He has some beliefs that aren't orthodox. And he seems to be redefining the gospel's non-negotiables. His bad doctrine begins creeping and crawling like poison ivy through the church body and unsuspecting people walk into it and the infection begins to spread. Somehow he seems to keep evading church authority. He's elusive. In a church, how do you deal with Eric the elusive? Case study number three, Jasmine. Jasmine is a middle-aged woman, mother of two teenagers. She's been living the mill life. She's a military spouse. It's always been her and her husband's plan to put in 20 years and then retire to Arizona. And she's looking forward to the sun. She's looking forward to the warmer winters. She can already taste those Arizona chimichangas. <laughs> Recently, her husband dropped a bomb on her. It interrupted her plans. It ruined her winter. He wants to get out of the army and start a career as an electrician. To make it worse, a month later, he changed his plans again, and now he wants to start a new business, house flipping. She can decorate, and he can remodel. And the instability is shaking Jasmine. By the time she mentally accepts her new future as Joanna Gaines, he's changing it to another future. She's dizzy. 
She's losing her grip. She hasn't been able to work well. She's behind on everything. Friends, how do you handle when your whole world is changing overnight? How do you rest when your future lies within the hands of someone else? If you're Jasmine the Dizzy, how do you spiritually reorient yourself? Case study number four, Jada. Jada and her husband just moved to a new church. They each desire Christian community, but they're unsure how to find it. And Jada asked her husband a question and then answered it like all good wives do. And she said, where do we find strength in the midst of stress and discouragement? Then she answered her own question. We go to the gospel and then we go to Christian brothers and sisters. But I don't feel like we have any Christian brothers and sisters. She's Jada the Lonely. What's so intriguing about today's passage is that Paul tells Titus how to deal with Tim the Texas Tiger, Eric the Elusive, Jasmine the Dizzy, and Jada the Lonely. I've never unpacked a text this exact way, but I want to show you how the gospel presses into each case study. So first, let's see how the gospel presses into case study number one, Tim the Texas Tiger. The Tim I told you about earlier is merely a 21st century version of the Tim in the text. Paul, having told Titus to insist on certain things in verse 8, he now tells Titus to avoid certain things in verse 9. Recently, I read how buzzards and eagles are similar, yet at the same time very different. They both have, they're both birds... Uh, they both soar on the wind. They both have powerful wings. They both have sharp vision. What makes them different is in the way they view life below. What they focus on. What it is that attracts their attention. In a similar way, whatever you're interested in or not interested in will determine your spiritual focus. What you focus on or refuse to focus on will by and large determine the quality of your life. And Paul says, don't be a buzzard. Avoid these four dead carcasses. And here's the first one, verse 9. Avoid foolish controversies. Now this cannot possibly be saying avoid all theological controversy. For Jesus himself was a controversialist in constant debate with the religious leaders of his day. Paul was also drawn into controversy over this gospel. It was controversy that led to the Nicene Creed, catechisms, and the Reformation. So then, not all controversy is banned, but only, the adjective keeps us on track here, avoid foolish controversy. The word foolish is the word from which we get our English word moron. Moronic debates. Moronic arguments. Apparently, there were people in the churches on the island who were dogmatic about needless issues, determined to conquer people. And like Tim, they possess by nature a lust for the fray. Let's just for a moment consider the diversity of backgrounds in these churches and how difficult it must have been for them to get along. A converted pirate on the docks, uh, Jack Sparrow, if you would, sitting next in church to a husband and wife who have never missed a night of family devotions and their kids have, been allowed, have never been allowed to step foot on the docks. Two different backgrounds. A, a poor beggar who came to Christ sitting next to a wealthy businessman who owns many vineyards on the island. Some grew up without any education and one of them, we'll find out later in the text, is an attorney. 
some were raised under the influence of the Essenes, a sect that pandered toward formality and ritual. They ate special meals together only after participating in special rituals of cleansing with water. And they're now standing in the pew singing next to Gentiles who barely bathed to begin with, much less partake in some kind of spiritual ritual cleansing. People who wanted to overthrow and kill the Romans singing next to someone who works for the Romans. What a diverse church. One of the things I love about FFC is our diversity. I love it. I mean, we have kids here who read Latin and then soldiers who have Latin tattoos who have no idea what it says. (laughs) We have some who have never smoked a cigar or had a glass of wine in his or her life and others who lead Bible studies in a cigar shop or a bar. Some of you are from Florida and you have literally wrestled wrestled if you're in the south anywhere else it's wrestled gators and in your small group are other people from california who will not wear fur because of cruelty toward animals <laughs> singing next to each other every sunday is the rich and the poor doctoral degrees and an eighth grade education what brings this crowd together the gospel The gospel brings a diverse group of people together. Now, this is important. Do do not miss this. We all went to the cross and had our sins washed away. But our opinions tend to stick. And in any generation, there are plenty of controversies that are really unfruitful. Whether or not global warming is legit. If drilling offshore is a good idea. If gun control is a bad thing. If border control is a waste of money, if you should be eating only organic foods, if kale actually originated in hell, (laughs) if driving an electric car is a proper way to take care of our planet, if genetically modified foods are harmful. And I haven't even brought up anything controversial yet. I mean, we could really begin to hash out political views and parenting styles and what we allow our kids to watch and worship instruments. There are secondary issues that we can easily elevate to the level of gospel truth. And John Calvin said, it is the skill of Satan to entangle Christians by these foolish debates. What else are we to avoid? Verse 9, next word, genealogies. The Jewish people on the island meticulously investigated and documented their family lines. Jews would hold over the Gentiles the fact that they had a connection to the apostles. They had a connection to Jerusalem. They had a familial connection to the prophets. They had a special connection to the former covenants. The Jews claimed some kind of spiritual superiority. So what naturally happened? The Gentiles were viewed as second-class Christians when genealogies became equal with the gospel and you can imagine the disruption that Titus caused in the church when he appointed some unconnected unimpressive unimposing Gentile man as an elder and bypassed some distant relative from some noble Jewish clan descending from one of the more impressive Jewish tribes of Israel on top of that there were some in the church who instead of looking at those genealogies with their historic face value 
They would read into them all kinds of bizarre, wild, crazy, allegorical, and mystical interpretations. All of a sudden, that secret, elevated, mystical truth becomes the real truth, and they can spin fables and legends. And, and Paul says, avoid, shun, literally, turn your face, which is what some of you should do. When you see people in Christendom running loose, espousing all kinds of bizarre, mystical teaching, and all kinds of unbiblical trash. Next word we are to avoid, notice, dissensions. <laughs> dissensions. Churches historically have been known to spend too much time and effort on needless dissensions. Disputes not worth the words spent or the time taken. One of these controversies raised in the church in the middle of the last century was indoor baptistries. <laughs> Baptist churches never heard of such a thing. Jesus and the apostles didn't do it that way. And they were torn over a decade for this. People left churches left and right because of this. There are things that are not essential to Christianity, but some will insist on them to the spiritual detriment of those around them. I used to be a part, my wife did as well, part of a church where they saw it as a compromise. You were a liberal church if you did not have a Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night service. The hoax. We were all members of the same church at that time. <laughs> You were, a, you were a liberal. Charles Spurgeon, the Spurge, my dead mentor, he used to fight about pianos in the church. He said, uh, since pianos were in bars, he said, you're bringing the bar into the house of God. He'd say, manufactured music is no better than manufactured prayer. They all sang a cappella. He eased up on it later in life. In the same way, the church in every generation can get caught up in debatable interpretations about questionable things. The Bible isn't as clear as we like it to be, so we assume sides and then we take shots. Why should we not do this? Notice the end of verse 9. For they are unprofitable and worthless. Now, what are some gospel steps forward for Tim, the Tim in our case, and the Tims in our text, and the male and female Tims in our church. What are some steps forward? Well, I have two for you. This is the first one. You must, you must learn to stay away from mindless, pointless arguments. You need to be wise with your time and deal with only profitable matters. How many of you have ever been to a buffet? Would you raise your hand if you've ever been to a buffet? Okay. How many of you, deep down, you, buffets really disgust you? people reaching over. Would you raise your hand? I right, keep it up. These are, these are God's people right here with their hands raised. Um, when you go to a buffet, there are things you can slap on your plate that look good. But you know it's not going to be good for you later. The same with walking along the buffet of controversies. Things might look interesting. It might seem appealing. But don't put it on your plate. You'll end up with spiritual stomachache or worse. Notice that Paul doesn't say they're unpopular. They are very popular, but they are unprofitable. And part of growing in the Christian life is learning which is which. Certain controversies do not lead you to soul growth and spirit strength. You cannot live off of correcting needless controversies any more than you can eat medicine as a meal. Some controversies can be helpful and others can be deadly. You don't want a doctor who never thinks of surgery. Nor do you want a doctor who always thinks of surgery. There's a difference in how you approach a common cold and how you approach a cancer. 
Pick your battles carefully. The gospel is too important to be trifling with lesser agendas. Do you really want to trade the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for this current election cycle? Or the use of drums? Or which vaccines are acceptable? Now I'm going to adapt, a, I'm going to build off of a C.S. Lewis quote here. And um, if he were living, he'd probably be like, oh, you're murdering it. But I think I'm improving it. All right. <laughs> we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with should we use plastic straws, GMOs, and cell phone radiation when infinite joy is offered to us. We're like a silly child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because we cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a buffet at the sea. He says, we are far too easily pleased. Don't slap a mud pie on your plate. Go for a feast at the sea. Trade foolish controversies for the gospel. You must learn to stay away from mindless, pointless arguments. Secondly, you must learn to evaluate your contentious soul. Let the gospel speak into your contentious soul. Brian Chappell said there's a difference between needing to divide and loving to divide. A divisive person loves to fight. But a person who, who loves peace and purity may be forced into division, but it's not his character. He enters arguments regrettably and infrequently. He grieves to have to disagree with the brother. Chuck Swindoll, who, um, you know, the you younger crowd do not know him, faithful expositor, some of you that are a little more mature, you'll know him. He commented on this verse and he said that he, he was aware of two seminary students who were disciplined after their yelling match over the doctrine of sanctification escalated into a fist fight. <laughs> How ironic is that? Arguing over godly living to the point you start punching one another. The bride of Christ can trip walking down the aisle. The bride of Christ can act in such a way that you would never imagine while waiting for her groom. If the Bible isn't clear on it, don't argue over it. The enemy will be more than happy in a church fight to stay neutral and provide both sides with ammunition. Paul says, Titus, tell all the Tims to stay away from foolish controversy. Now, let's talk about how the gospel presses into case study number two. Eric the elusive. Apparently our Eric peddling bad theology isn't a new dilemma. Notice verse 10. As for a person who stirs up division... The old King Jimmy translates this, the man who is a heretic, which I think is the best translation of, of all of them. The Greek word for division, heretikos, gives us our English word heretic. It speaks of someone who causes theological division. And church friends, this is when you need to speak up. This is when you need to argue. Don't spend your time on mud pie. Spend it on a seafood buffet. Don't be a buzzard. Be an eagle. See that this is important. Notice, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. <laughs> Notice that Paul doesn't say, you go and you yell at him. You rip his face off. He doesn't say, you get all irate and make your face blood red. Put your finger right on his nose. It's not what he says. The word warning here comes from the Greek verb, nathetio, 
which is where we get our word nuthetic, speak of counseling. It's a gentle kind of warning telling someone you better change your direction. The purpose of warning is to get the Eric's to change their minds. And Paul describes this heretic with three descriptive words. Notice verse 11. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful and is self-condemned. Warped. That's a very strong term. It literally means his mind is turned inside out. It could be translated distorted or twisted. It's used in medical literature of the day and translated dislocated. Eric the elusive turns out to be Eric the heretic with a dislocated theological mind. And how do we deal with him? Well, I've got two ways. First, Eric's must be lovingly warned. And this warning comes in the process of three stages. Notice in the text there's a first warning, then there's a second warning, and then Calvin says if he continues to go forward in his naughtiness, I love that, if he continues in his naughtiness, then you treat him with indifference. You literally turn your back on him. You have nothing more to do with him. Now, that is tougher than any baseball umpire I've ever met. Two strikes and you're out. Now, this isn't talking about your lost friends at work or your lost family members. It's talking about people dividing the church with bad theology. Eric's must be lovingly warned. Secondly, you must not let Eric's get away with unrepentance. They are self-condemned, the text says. This person is self-condemned because he will not repent. And once confronted, he will not turn, thus showing us that he was not one of us and he must be excluded from the fellowship. When you protect the purity of the church, you protect the purity of the gospel. And Paul's mentoring his protege Titus and he's saying, Titus, I've seen thriving churches flirt with apostasy. My scars over the years are my gifts to you. And let me just tell you, Eric's not going to like it and neither will Eric's posse. But you need to do it. Chuck Swindoll writes, The battle-hardened apostle wanted to prepare Titus for the conflicts awaiting him. Effective spiritual leadership does everything with compassion but never at the expense of conviction. It never fails to confront when necessary. And if the pastor elder isn't willing to love his congregation enough to risk misunderstanding and criticism, he should step aside and choose another less hazardous occupation. It's well put. That's like saying if a baseball umpire can't quite bring himself to call a batter out, he really ought to look for another occupation. Yes, there's going to be division. There's going to be pain and hurt and emotional tearful moments. But you must not let the campfire turn into a forest fire. Eric must be excommunicated from the church. This is why we practice here church discipline. John L. Dagg rightly notes, when discipline leaves the church, Christ goes with it. A church without discipline is like a family without discipline. It isn't functioning properly. And now let me talk to those of you who are non-Christians because you're like, mm, is it time? What, what did I just walk into? What is this? And I know this sounds strange to you. But we love you too much to allow heresy to creep into the church and disrupt the, the message of the gospel. And we love you too much to act like an unrepentant lifestyle is in step with the gospel. Because it isn't. The gospel leads us to repentance. 
Let's go to the third. How does the gospel press into case study number three? Jasmine, the dizzy. Remember her? In the first two case studies, Paul really, I mean, he comes out swinging. It's like the, like the boxing match last night. I can't remember their names. What are their names? Tight. Yeah, yeah. Like, he's coming out swinging, you know, like, like me sometimes in a, in a church argument. No, I'm just kidding. This, this is the former church I pastored. I won't bring it up now. I just, that's under the blood. It's finished. All right, so in the first two cases, Paul comes out swinging. And, and, and Titus, he may be dazed by the quick jabs. But here in the third, Paul comes out comforting. He's hugging with words. Notice verse 12. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you. Well, let's just unpack those two names. Who is Artemis? This is the only place he's mentioned in the Bible. His name is derived from the Greek goddess Artemis. His name meant gift of Artemis. Which, which means he was born to parents who considered the birth and life of their son to be a gift from this goddess. Which tells us he was born into a Gentile idolatrous home, but Art evidently came to faith later in life. And then Tychicus, or Tychicus, we're just going to call him Big T. My brother had a friend in North Carolina named Big T, and this is how I picture him. So Big T was Paul's traveling companion in Acts chapter 20. He is also a Gentile who later came to faith in Jesus Christ. And we know from the book of Acts that he's Asian. And he carried Paul's letters to Ephesus and Colossae. Now notice this. I will send art or big T. Some of you need to underline the word or because you're going to need to hold on to it. In the original language, this is an indefinite clause, which means Paul hasn't made up his mind. He doesn't know. Titus, I've got two possible men to take over for you there on the island of Crete. But at this point, I'm not sure which one is the best candidate. Embedded within the inspired scripture is Paul's admission that God hasn't let, 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 yet led him clearly in every area of his life. And, and maybe you're wondering, which class do I take? Or which college do I attend? Which house do I buy? Which way do I educate my children? Which guy do I marry? Which job do I take? Let, let's just all admit with Paul, we're not sure which way to turn. He continues speaking, Do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend winter there. Now, I haven't decided which man to send to Crete, but I have decided to spend winter at Nicopolis. The historian Zahn tells us there were probably nine cities named Nicopolis. It's from two words, polis, meaning city, and, and Nico where we get the word Nike, you think of shoes, but Nike was a word for victor or victory or conquer. And every time great generals won battles, they wanted to memorialize their triumphs. And one of the ways they did this was to plant cities, and they called it Nicopolis, or victory town. And there were as many cities there named Nicopolis as cities named Franklin in the States. And this particular victory town was along the Mediterranean and it's where Octavian defeated Mark Antony and Cleopatra. Paul would be going there for winter to rest, to strategize, to spend time with Titus. This victory town was an ideal location for Paul to continue meeting people and spreading the gospel. Its location signals the intention to travel further west, perhaps to Spain. And by saying he decided to winter there, and not here implies he's not yet in Nicopolis. 
Now, what are some gospel steps forward in dealing with Jasmine's who were dizzied by her husband's constant change of plans? Well, here's a step forward. First, steady Jasmine's with this truth. You are unclear about your future, but God sees it clearly. Even in the text, Paul is dizzy about what decision to make. Art and Big T's future lay in the hands of Paul, and they're dizzy waiting on, to see how God will lead him. If, if you put all the clues together in the scripture, you'll discover that Paul ended up sending Big T to Ephesus. And we may reasonably assume that the plan Paul outlined here materialized, so he sent Art to Crete. Friends, if, if you can trust God with your now unblemished soul, you can trust God with your now unanswered questions. I, I want you to look at Titus as he reads the letter. All right, so how long did it take him to read the letter? Well, it took us about two months to get through it, so I'm thinking it probably took him about two minutes. So he's reading the letter, and he's, he's going through, and he gets to the end because we're finishing Titus today. So he gets to the end. He's winding down the letter, and he's, he's looking forward to really just being a forever missionary on this Mediterranean island. I mean, who, who wouldn't want to stay here forever? And then he reads, When I send art and big tea to you, do your best to come to me at Victory Town? Titus's mouth drops. His face now shows disappointment. Crete has become home. I've been through power struggles here. I've taken on false teachers. The churches now have appointed elders and fruit is now beginning to bud. What do you mean you're going to send art or big tea to take my place? This is home. This letter was a bombshell to the plans of Titus. His plans were entirely interrupted. And friends, when yours are, you need to remember that God not only orders the steps of his children, but he orders their stops as well. And you need to be steadied with this truth. Steady Jasmine's with this truth. Home is in a person, not in a place. If you have Christ, you have home. Christ is your home. Stephen Davey, who pastors in Cary, North Carolina, helped me so much with this passage. And I want to quote one sentence. He said, Paul will be arrested for the final time. And Titus will have his winter plans changed and then on to an entirely new ministry in Dalmatia. All right, I'm going to read that again. Paul will be arrested for the final time, and Titus will have his winter plans changed, and then on to an entirely new ministry, Dalmatia. And listen, all of this is going to change for them in a matter of months. They just don't know it yet. And isn't that what it's like to walk with Christ? Smooth roads and clear pathways and then a quick turn. And before you know it, God has you off roads. Off roads. No, no paved roads, no map, no GPS, no Arizona chimichangas in sight. What's your list of plans? Retire in five years. Graduate in five months. Get married in five days. Have five kids. Gain five ranks. Start five branches of your new business. There's nothing wrong with planning. Paul and Titus were neck deep in it. But when their plans were, were always written in pencil, and when God moved to erase something here and rewrite something over there, they deferred to the wisdom and plan of God. None of us. None of us should occupy a role with a sense of permanence. We're to live with a mental suitcase packed and ready. 
should God choose to change our world with a letter or a conversation? Now on to the fourth. How does the gospel press into case study number four, Jada the Lonely? Have you ever noticed that Paul is always with people? He's always bringing greetings. He always has people around him. And if he doesn't, he always wants to have people around him. He wasn't a lone ranger. He needed people. The lonely, like Jada, need friends. But how do they make them? The same way Titus and the churches in Crete are taught to do. First, show kindness to God's transient people. Notice verse 13. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they like nothing. So Zenos and Apollos carried this letter of Titus to Titus. And, and Paul wants Titus to quickly send them on their way. Give them a hearty send-off. Take good care of them. Make sure they lack nothing. The verb here is used in regards to the necessities of life. Supply food and clothing. These two men are, are on their way to other places of ministry. And Paul wants Titus to use this opportunity to teach the church how to give to someone that we might refer to today as a missionary. They're serving Christ somewhere else. We are called to care for those that carry the good news of the gospel and see that they like nothing, which is why we support missions at this church. Let's unpack the two names. First, Zenos. He was a professional expert in the Roman law. And he, by the way, is the only Christian lawyer mentioned in Scripture, for what that's worth. Then Apollos. He's, Apollos, he's, he's already well known in the Christian community. He was a gifted orator and an apologist in the first century church. The Bible refers to Apollos as mighty in the Scriptures. There was a, there was a church father named Chrysostom. He was so eloquent, they called him Golden Mouth. Well, Apollos was the original golden mouth. And notice that Paul has no ill feelings toward Apollos. You ask, well, why in the world would he? Well, there's a history there. It, it seemed that some of the Christians in Corinth preferred the ministry of Apollos over Paul. And with this going on, it would be easy for Paul to feel competitive about Apollos and bitter toward him. He's young, gifted, and well-liked. But notice, not a word about all those petty factions back in Corinth. Not one disparaging comment about Apollos. Just show kindness. Churches show kindness to transient people in the church. Now, we've already mentioned missionaries. This is why we support missionaries in our church. But we have transient, other transient people in our church. Military. Nomads. Nomads are what I call people that just seem to move around. They change jobs a lot. They move cities a lot. And they're only going to be here for a short time. They're transient. We need to show kindness to all the transient people in our church. So first, show kindness, kindness to God's transient people. Secondly, show kindness to God's stationary people. The churches on Crete had people who would live and die on the island. So you've got first generation, second generation, third generation, fourth generation islanders. And FFC, because of the nature and location of our church, we will have lots of transient people. But we will also have lots of stationary people. People that plan on living and dying here. And notice verse 14. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Engaging in good works refers to a lifestyle, a selfless lifestyle 
not a momentary flash of service. And you're like, oh my goodness, Kyle, are, are you really? Good works again? Is Paul running out of material or investigativeness? No. He's driving home the central thrust of the book and the central outworking of the gospel. Serve people. Who's going to do good works for the stationary? Meal trains, babysitting, coffee dates, play dates, spending time with a widow, teaching children, serving in the church. You may be like Jada, and you need to realize that friendships do not occur by accident. They require time and effort. One scholar said, the way to get is to give. Instead of lamenting that no one invites you for a meal, that, that church is so unfriendly and everyone relates on a superficial level, take the initiative and see what happens. End quote. Show kindness to God's transient people. Show kindness to God's stationary people. And then finally, make friends all over the world. Christian friendship is a gift of God's grace. And at this church, we get the ability to exercise it often and then to spread out friends all over the world. Bonhoeffer said, It is grace, nothing but grace, that we are allowed to live in community with Christian brothers and sisters. Paul had worldwide friends. In the book of Acts, it's amazing to see all of his friends and how intentional he was at spending time with them. It took sacrifice to spend time with them. Paul swam in friends, ethnically diverse friends, Jews, Gentiles, weak, strong, slave, free. He traveled with them. He visited them. He worked alongside them. He was beaten with them. He encouraged them. He, at times, disagreed with them. And he also, at times, reconciled with them. Verse 15. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Love that. The word you is plural. If Paul was from Texas, he would have said, Grace be with y'all. All y'all. Grace be with you. And why would grace be extended to everyone? Because none of us will ever pull off this letter without God's grace. I would not have been able to preach this letter without God pouring out His grace. We'll never be able to shun foolish controversies without grace. We'll never be able to stand up to people who are poisoning the church with bad theology without grace. We'll never be able to wait on God to reveal, reveal our future without grace. We'll never be able to serve one another without grace. We'll never show kindness without grace. His amazing grace is what we need when the fire is hot and the water is deep. See, there was a word here for four different groups. A word for all the Tims. Avoid. A word for all the Erics. Repent. A word for all the Jasmines. Trust. A word for all the Jadas. Serve. We see in verse 9, gospel-centered debates. We see in verse 10 and 11, gospel-centered rebukes. We see in verse 12, gospel-centered hope. We see in verses 13 through 15, gospel-centered friendships. What Eric, what Tim, Eric, Jasmine, Jada, and everyone in this auditorium need is the gospel, the natural outworkings of the gospel. 
Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.